Hello and welcome to episode four of Breaking Down the Big C, series two. Uh, today we are joined by Robin McGee, who joins us from Canada. Now, this episode was riddled with um, weather problems. Now, in Canada, the weather was really, really bad and it was quite intermittent. So if you hear a lot of uh, dipping in and out of the interview, you understand why, because the signal kept dropping uh, for one reason or another. Um, but it's it's definitely well worth listening to because Robin's story is very unique um, and I'll, it's very frustrating uh, that... Well, basically, I'll let Robin get into it during the interview, but it's very frustrating to hear what she's had to have gone through to get where she is today. Um, but I would strongly encourage you to listen right the way through to the end because she likes to talk about her a book or a special project, um, and it is it's it's fantastic. So I would highly recommend listening all the way through to the end. Um, but without further ado, let's get on with the interview. So today I'm joined by Robin McGee, is it? McGee pronounced? Yep. Uh, all the way from Canada. How are you today? <laughs> well, I'd be better if it weren't pouring miserable freezing rain right here right now. Oh, wow. It is. <laughs> uh, so Robin has kindly agreed to join us on this episode to talk about her diagnosis of what you thought was stage 3B colorectal cancer. Is that right? No, I was stage four all along, as it turns out, mm. although they, initially they said, oh, yeah, no, this is curable. But uh, there was a distant uh, uh, met in a, in a lymph node, which kind of shrank back to normal size after my initial treatment. So they said, oh, well, that's fine. Everything's fine. But of course, it turns out that that met was the uh, epicenter of my recurrence that I had about seven years later. So I was, in fact, stage four all along. Oh wow! Okay, well let's let's start with the beginning. So you were diagnosed in May 2010. Uh, so what were your symptoms leading up to the diagnosis? I had uh, daily uh, rectal bleeding. I had an immediate family history of colorectal cancer, and I had a positive cancer screening test. But despite wow. all of that, uh, the four doctors I saw on my uh, my pa diagnostic pathway, my search for a correct diagnosis. All four of those dis, uh, dismissed and belittled the presentation I had because they believed that people under the age of 50, I was 46 at the time, um, couldn't get colorectal cancer. So they just said, nope, no scope for you. You're under 50. And wow. uh, it took two years of uh, active lobbying to finally get a colonoscopy, which detected what was then a, a lethal stage for Wow. So it was literally that sort of black and white. They were reading from a textbook, so to speak, and said, no, you're not 50. We're not doing anything about it. Exactly right. Wow. That's exactly right. That was exactly right. And uh, so uh, it was, uh, well, I'll get, I'll be talking later. That, that was the, <laughs> yeah. um, the, it took uh, from the day uh, to, ideally, um, if someone has rectal bleeding, they should be, uh, have a diagnostic workup completed within 60 days. I didn't wait 60 days. I waited 600 
161 wow. days. So that was nearly two years. So, of course, uh, uh, a curable lesion, it would have been at the beginning, was incurable by the time it was detected. That, that just seems completely outrageous, that does. <laughs> it, it was. And I, yeah. I, my care was truly <clears throat> terrible. Uh, as, uh, and it's not just my opinion that it was terrible. The, the doctors on my diagnostic pathway were disciplined by the um, Provincial Medical Board here. College of Physicians and Surgeons of Nova Scotia, and I was able to uh, successfully sue them in a malpractice action, which, at least here in my country, is uh, unless you have absolute black and white, open and shut case, but that's what mine was. So I was able to successfully sue them. In seven years of litigation, the defense attorneys for the doctor weren't able to find one expert anywhere in the world willing to defend a standard of care delivered that horribly. Because, of course, it would be the analogy is saying breast cancer screening starts at 50, therefore no woman under the age of 50 can get breast cancer. I'm not interested in your lump. <laughs> of course, we all know what young women have died of breast cancer. And, of course, today we, it's all over the news that uh, mm. what they call early onset colorectal cancer, anybody under the age of 50, it's so big an issue that the American Cancer Society just um, recommended that the age for um, diagnosis or uh, screening, screening endoscopy has been lowered to 45. Does, would you say that makes uh, much of a difference with it just dropping down five years? Well, there's, the problem is to judge anybody's clinical case based on um, uh, screening standards intended for asymptomatic people. Mm. So what we know, of course, is that if people's symptoms accumulate, the likelihood that they have the disease they appear to have gets greater and greater and greater. So to say, you're under 50, no possibility of cancer here is, is, is uh, well, it's not just efficient medical reasoning, it's yeah. crazy. It, it, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely absurd. Absurd. It, it, it it shouldn't be. I mean, I've heard it a few times where they say, "Oh, you're young and you're fit, you're otherwise healthy. This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening." It, it just, all right, yeah, it shouldn't be happening. But, but my is. age, <laughs> yeah, but my age shouldn't have anything to do with that. It's you exactly. know, it, it, oh, it just, boy, it, it boils my blood a bit. But uh, anyway, so we'll go back to when you were eventually diagnosed. Um, so what? What sort of plan did they did they come up with in terms well, of treatment? In those days, uh, what uh, was expected for my uh, stage of disease? That, again, this is assuming I was curable, uh, which I wasn't. But they uh, they so I was I ended up being undertreated for the stage that I actually was. Mm. So uh, I was um, chemo uh, chemotherapy and radiation concurrently for thirty days. Uh, then um, ultimately a um, uh, resection. After that's all done, they do a resection surgery where they kind of remove the entire, what I had was what they call a total mesorectal excision, like the entire rectum and all associated lymph nodes are removed, is removed. And you have a temporary ileostomy while everything heals. And uh, then you have uh, an, uh, the adjuvant chemotherapy was six, for me, they gave me six months of a, a, a chemotherapy pill, Zolota, which was um, it, 
as another kind of bizarre aspect of my story, the best practice treatment for that level of cancer in even in 2010 was a drug called Folfox, which was um, it's the norm today, completely everywhere. But in 2010, everywhere in the Western world used it as a treatment, except my province of Nova Scotia. It was the only province in Canada and the only uh, the United States, United Kingdom, Europe, Australia, ev everywhere in the wow. Western uh, world used a Folfox for treatment for, a, for, for late stage rectal cancer, but not, but not my province. So my community and I lobbied the provincial government to extend our formulary to include this drug. Uh, but And we were ultimately successful in that. I'm kind of giving away but the plot of my book. But we were successful in lobbying the government, but too late for me to receive it. So I never did receive that best chance of cure. But what I can tell you is that since the days of our advocacy, over 1,500 uh, Nova Scotians have had opportunity to get that best chance uh, uh, medication since the days of our advocacy and the 12 years that have elapsed since then. So, uh, so other people have been saved, but I, I wasn't. Uh, it was the drug I should have had uh, if I had been, um, if it was available, and I certainly yeah. should have had it as a stage four uh, case. Did you, know at the, did you know at the time to question it, or was it just oh, a yes. case of believing what, oh, right, okay. No, 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 I, did, I, I, I have a... Um, Political psychologist in my day job, so we're, we that's uh -huh. that's a, uh, a job that uh, you have to have a PhD uh, with a heavy concentration in clinical research methods in order to get that degree. Mm. So people like me, trained like me, are are really aware of how to evaluate research. So it took me, you know, it was <laughs> easy to see that this was a universal standard everywhere, and that there was that our province was simply ignoring the research on that and the reason they were doing that is because the research had uh, the, the treatment evidence for this drug was so good that all the world gave up on further studies because it was self-evident it was the best mm -hmm. it was the best case treatment and uh that's they said well we wanted study x to be finished and they never finished it so it was an ingenuous way of the government saying we don't want to pay <laughs> wow. but of course now it's the norm no now no no oncologist would doubt for a second that that's what mm. you would provide to someone at a late stage of colorectal cancer wow did they did they have um the multidisciplinary teams to discuss this sort of thing there well interestingly the the oncologists were very well aware of how we as a province were backwards relative to their colleagues in other provinces. And they, as soon as uh, my community and I started lobbying the government, they started to do so too. So ah, they started cool. calling and saying, you're right, she's right, she's right, this needs to happen. You need to make this so. And there was a bit of pushback, of course, uh, uh, various members of the, you know, it got all political with the opposition party raising to the floor up the legislature, you know, all kinds of for all yeah. went around it as uh, as these things can do but uh, in the end um uh it was it was obviously endorsed as a, as an appropriate standard and and other people after me were able to get it right so so just going back to what you were actually given so uh you had said you were given uh, a different type of chemotherapy and radiation so what what was the radiation that you were given 
28 days uh, of radiation. Is that uh, like a, a proton beam or? Yeah, it was no, no, it wasn't. This was Tony oh. Tan. They didn't have protein beam in oh, those so days. I, 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 so <laughs> sorry, we were. Uh, this was, uh, you know, this is like the the, the Stone Age version. Uh, <laughs> so it was I'm just not, uh, uh, <laughs> external pelvic radiation, like uh, just just given. Right oh, up, right. so, uh, and and uh, you, of course, you live with the associated damage of that mm-hmm. uh, in the long oh, run. So I'm sorry, I'm not uh, not the best clued up with radiation. I've had internal radiation, and I I pretty much just slept through it. <laughs> so yeah, I, no, I didn't really no. want to know too much about it. Yeah. But uh, so what what sort of side effects did you get from that? Oh uh, well, the combined chemo radiation. There's fatigue and and mm. uh, so forth. But uh, the the uh, in the short, you have acute uh, symptoms that like um, like a sort of colitis that comes as the as the radiation affects your intestine and so forth, and uh, it's, it, it, are, it affects the bladder as well. So, but I, I did on the most part okay with the acute side of it. On a, eventually, your skin sort of blossoms and blisters and burns, and I won't tell you where on your body. Just <laughs> assume that it's a place where the sun doesn't shine and it hurts yeah, you know, I, to be yeah. happy to be fundamentally um, <laughs> have a second. Well, having what was it a second degree burns there bleeding to the blisters to the point of bleeding and uh so that's radiation surgery is a whole other thing and then uh what happens after you have your adjuvant therapy once you're recovered from your chemotherapy that you have after you have the surgery then you can have your ileostomy reversed so they reconnect you so that unfortunately Though, um, in, uh, again, in those days, little this was a new practice in 2010, relatively new, and uh, they didn't understand how damaging it was to people's functional abilities to have to have a, a, a rectum removed and to have the the remaining um, sort of spliced colon to uh, is uh, is now radiated or has been severely mm-hmm. radiated. So, radiation and surgery. Combined results in really quite a terrible dysfunction, bowel dysfunction condition known as low anterior resection syndrome, also wow. called LARS. And this is a, 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 a syndrome of bowel disorganization, which affects people who've had this, this type of uh, surgery. And, and concurrent radiation makes that the likelihood of that LARS syndrome much, much higher. And if you didn't wow. have radiation or if you didn't have that surgery, but uh, that's what's required to survive. So that's what you had to do. Mm. So, Wow. And then you were put on, it, you say, is that X-loader, which is capsidamine? Cap- capsidamine, yeah. That's yeah, a yeah. load of monotherapy. It's just a, it's just a pill. And mm. I tolerated that reasonably well, but of course it comes with fatigue and so forth. It also comes with a terrible... Um, painful condition called hand and foot syndrome where the soles yeah. of your feet and the, the palms of your hands become really, really, really red sensitive uh, and, and, uh, and will also blister and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and come off. So it's, um, that's one thing on the hands. It makes it hard to sort of handle utensils and so forth. But it's really torture when it happens to your feet because then you ultimately can't walk effectively. Yeah. It's like walking over lava, hot coals is what it feels yeah. like. I was I was going to ask you about that because there's a lot of people with the the sort of forums that I talk to with my type of cancer they they've also had this and they're, they're always coming up with things to to try and remedy the the 
uh, side effects with yeah. um, oh, there's a special type of moisturiser that has a particular yeah. animal. I think it's animal's urine in it that's supposed to be really good for your skin. Yeah, there's, oh, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it, but even with those, even with loaded with moisturizer 24 seven, you will still suffer. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happened after the capsaicin? You uh, were you on a well, then I have the, then I have a, a surgery, another surgery, a surgery to reverse the temporary ileostomy. So you're right, reconnected, yeah. but you're really suffering, and that that uh, went on pretty seriously for about two years. And then stabilized, from my, in my case, stabilized out so uh, to the point where I was able to return to full-time work and, and uh, able to uh, travel and live life until I recurred. And then there was, then all hell broke loose again. So, oh, wow. so, so <laughs> remarkably, after having, believe it or not, this, this is like, how does lightning strike twice? So I had the horrendous malpractice situation involving the four doctors uh, and that, and for my Preliminary diagnosis, when my disease recurred, I encountered another staggeringly horrible medical error, a two-centimeter tumor, which sprang back up uh, in the place where one would have predicted, right, uh, uh, in the place where there appeared to be a met before. It came back. It was two centimeters in size. The radiologist, a distracted radiologist, missed it, missed it, just oh, didn't wow. see it. It's right there in front of him, but he... Even non-radiologists could see it easily, but he couldn't see it. And he said, no, nope, nothing to see here. This girl's fine. Nothing. But of course, my cancer blood markers started going up and up and up. And so I was appealing to the surgeons I had at the time saying, you know, I need something's wrong here. No, I don't know. Your CT was fine. It was fine. Just go away. It's all in your head. CT was fine. And wow. anyway, it took me six months of lobbying. By the time I was able to uh, have a PET CT which revealed the malignancy, it had gone from two centimeters to ten centimeters, and it had vagled its way throughout the pelvis, throughout various organs. Wow. And uh, and what sadly, what my surgeon said at the time is, when I was able to find a, a, a real surgeon after getting rid of the ones who wouldn't listen, um, the, the that surgeon said, if I could have gotten to you when that was two centimeters, I could have saved your life, but because um, because I couldn't, uh, that ship has sailed. So by the time it's 10 centimeters and all over the place, it had actually migrated into an inoperable location in the pelvic sidewall, meaning it, there, there's no hope ever of, of cure or remission or anything like that. So, so at that, so that's, uh, so that was a second serious, um, mm. medical wrongdoing and mal yeah. not, well, hold on, malpractice. It was, well, I guess it is in the sense that it's, you know, it the, is uh, you, we don't. Complete. Yeah. Yeah, it is you know, entirely the fault of the medical practitioner. A false negative for cancer is a very serious error, or mm. the most serious error radiologists can make. And yet they, yeah. this person did that. And um, when ultimately uh, went through a process of hospital process to try and find this fellow and meet him and talk to him and say, what happened? Why did you, why did that? He just went. Hearing my margin of error it was like it was like talking to Mr. Spock. It was like, you know, yeah, wow. I never thought of it again. I just moved on. You know, that, I, that's outrageous. You know, yeah, I mean, it was. It was. It was very disappointing. If it, but, uh, if it was millimeters, I'm not saying that it would yeah, have been right. Yeah. If it was millimeters, you, yeah. you could expect 
a little bit 20 of... 20 millimeters. It wasn't. It was two, two centimeters. centimeters. Yeah, that's yes, a that huge. is a sizable, sizable lesion. He just didn't see it. I'm, I'm hoping that he no longer has employment in that industry anymore. Oh, of course he does. Oh. So it's, uh, you know, it's all... So it was in, it was interesting because having gone through the the complaint to the to the medical board to the to the College of Physicians Surgeons here and having been through a malpractice action for the first four, the fifth one, Doctor Five, I thought, well, let's just see what happens if you go through the ordinary hospital complaint process. And it took years to finally get to the table with him for a very unsatisfying um, um, mm. discussion. But uh, but nevertheless, it was uh, revealing that uh, it really did open my eyes to how much uh, healthcare harm, even uh, open and shut healthcare harm like that, really yeah. does need um, to be handled better by uh, by by hospitals, by by uh, physicians themselves, and um, that there there's much more humane ways to um, help people answer the questions that many people legitimately have if they've received really. If they've been harmed, substantially harmed by substandard care. So how how long did it actually take? Obviously, you were you were scanned. They missed it. How long did it take before you knew that it was ten centimeters? Six months. Six months. So that's how aggressive it was. It went from two centimeters to ten centimeters in six months' time. And what? How? I know this is going to sound like a really silly question, but how did that? make you feel to then be told that it was 10 centimeters did it was it sort of like an angry or was it upset or oh yeah i was angry uh, horrified and uh, mm. also resigned though they just like even god can't change the past i can't make it different by uh, by pointing out this was an error but it was what it was and uh, so as a as a result uh, so so carrying on then this 10 centimeter tumor I had a surgical oncologist says, well, I can, you know, do this, this, this. When we're in there, we'll see how far, how far gone it really was. So, you know, he did his best to sort of remove what was visible, but there was a great, as I say, it had moved into the, not one layer, but two layers into the pelvic sidewall. So almost next to the bone. So he said, you know, there's wow. nothing we can do about that. We can't, we can't take that out. So we, you have to, uh, you have to live with this. So uh, after that, um, so sadly, because of that surgery, I, I developed all kinds of horrendous complications from something that radical. And uh, so that required all kinds of superhuman efforts that, and other extensive surgeries. So the surgery I had to remove, the debulking surgery to remove that 10 centimeter lesion and all its um, efforence was, that um, took about 13 hours. Uh, and uh, they had to relocate certain organs and so forth. And in the doing of that, that certain of these organs that they relocated ended up themselves damaged by the relocation. So, uh, and they be and they ended up sort of bursting into each other and weird oh. organs were forming out of organs that aren't supposed to be communicating at all. So, uh, so that was so terrible that I, it took about 15 months and again, lots of Herculean effort to, I found, I traveled all over, I went to the States, I went all over where the entire province, exhausted all expert opinion here, and in Dallas, Texas, and all kinds of places. And in the end, I found my, uh, my uh, a surgeon who was willing to work on me, because most of them weren't. They said, this is hopeless, you're just going to have to live that way, and uh, there's nothing I can do. And then uh, it just was it's just way over my head. I've never seen anybody with 
with this before ever. Even super experts, uber experts were saying that. And eventually I found a guy who was better than all of them, I guess, in, uh, in Toronto. And he said, well, I don't think it'll work, but I'll, I'll try. If you come to me, I will try. So I, I did, uh, I did uh, move to Toronto for a, period, for a period of months. Had to go through a whole bunch of oxygen treatments prior to sort of uh, okay. make the tissues more operable. And I had to uh, undergo another 13, 14 hour surgery where he had to sort of pull, he had to tediously take all these scar, the organs out of their respective fused positions in scar tissues, take off all the scar tissue, sew up the little tiny holes that had been ripped in them all, and put them all back in. And he did that, and it was successful. It was a successful wow. cure for the, for the way I had been left. And it was uh, really quite a remarkable thing. But anyway, I needed to stay living in Toronto because I had to get um, yeah, to get uh, more hyperbaric oxygen treatments to sort of help the healing of something that uh, cataclysmic. And wow. I did. So I did that. And then I ended up moving home. And next thing you know, pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the, with the pandemic, after, after you've had this surgery, you move back home, the pandemic strikes. At what point or what part of the treatment plan were you at there? Were you scheduled for any treatment at, when the pandemic hit? Well, no, because uh, after I'd had this monumental surgery, uh, you know, time went by. I had that done in 2019. So in March of 2019, I had the Toronto big uh, pelvic reconstruction surgery yeah. that I had. Great. Then, then uh, uh, more time goes by, but on March, March 17th of 2020 was the day the lockdown was declared here in the province, my province of Nova Scotia, and that was the day my family doctor phoned and said, the PET CT you had recently reveals that the cancer has come back. It's now yeah. in blossom again. It, you know, it can go to sleep for a bit, but it, it's always there and it wakes up periodically. Yeah. And so it woke, it woke up and it was back, and and yet I, it, you know, with pandemic i couldn't get even though i was in the system and i had a patient number and a patient file and all of that couldn't get through could not get through to any healthcare providers couldn't get through the cancer clinic couldn't get through to the surgeon couldn't get through to anyone so it took three months uh, of effort to get out of um, that to eventually uh, get chemotherapy and it took five months to even speak to a surgeon by telephone yeah. uh, but but of course i you know, it was determined that uh, inoperable at this point. So they, there wasn't much to discuss with the surgeon. He was just saying, really, you know, the only, well, and it's the, 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 the only thing they could do would be palliative, then it would be so destructive. The, the, the remainder of your life wouldn't be, uh, would have zero quality. So the only thing they can really do for someone my, uh, in my situation is um, remove every single organ from the pelvis, every one. And I oh, just, wow. you know, I just finished moving heaven and earth to preserve those yeah. of those organs, organs. And I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not, and, and not to mention, people who have that done are profoundly disabled, profoundly disabled afterwards. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and uh, a gynecologist, uh, obstetrician, colleague of mine, friend of mine, said, uh, "Look, I've only ever seen that done to women in their twenties. It's the sort of surgery we do to someone who has a newborn baby." Because and even women in their twenties have never had radiation chemotherapy, and they're not in their fifties like you. They half of them die because it's that oh. morbid a surgery. So yeah. 
50% mortality rate just from the surgery. And that that's in, that's huge. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and it, because mine was pall it's palliative life, so I'll die sooner with my organs intact, thanks. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not prepared to go through a total evisceration. Uh, wow. I, just no, I, I, I don't think I'd know anyone that would, would take that chance. 50% is a huge, huge gamble. Well, you would if you were 20, 22 and you had a newborn and you yeah, never had yeah. any other surgery or treatments. You might consider it then because you just want to live a few more years to be with your yeah. baby. But, but that's, uh, you know, uh, that's, uh, it, uh, you know, you have to have really, you have to be really strong. To survive, yeah, right. and I just wouldn't be at my age. Yeah. My so you mentioned that you've had, uh, you have eventually had Folfox. Like, yes. So, yeah. so when I finally, <laughs> you know, when I, when my ten centimeter tumor was discovered, they said, "Well, you're going to have to have chemo now." Folfox. So I said, uh, "So I was like." That's the irony of this is ridiculous. This is unbelievably yeah. ironic. So, but I took a picture of myself signing the permission slip saying, look, everybody, I finally got. Seven years later, the drug I should have had, you know, years and years ago. Wow. And anyway, so I, I was able to get it, and it was, I really suffered. It was a very debilitating, for me, a very debilitating yeah. chemotherapy. I, had, I was actually that chemo and another chemo which again wasn't quite covered by the nova scotia formulary this time the media got involved though and they so uh an attention government attention suddenly made oh oh we'll make a special ex exception uh, we were going to grant permission for this drug in about eight months time anyway so we'll, we'll let you go through so i <laughs> uh, so again with the uh, it's 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 remarkable what media yeah. attention can do to these kinds yeah of yeah I, I always like to ask people with when they have Folfax or Oxaloplatin anyway, I always like to ask how people cope with it because I mean, it, it's one of the ones that I've had before and it is, it's horrendous. Horrendous, horrendous. I, I really, it was, for me, it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, I think no wonder people would rather be dead than be on this stuff yeah. because it's so, so harsh. I had two horrific mouth sores. I had, uh, the, the the companion drug really ravaged your skin, and I had uh, you know just tear you apart type diarrhea. It was awful, 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 and uh, really, really, really suffered on, uh, with that protocol. So, I, but I did, you know, whatever how many four 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 cycles of so twelve uh, infusions of of oxaliplatin, and it was just horrendously brutal. Yeah. And it did make a big difference in shrinking that 10 centimeter thing down, but not enough to change mm. the, ultimately the surgery plan. So, yeah. uh, so then we, so that, so it was, I found it quite, quite harsh. So I'm on a different yeah. protocol now, which is much more tolerable. Oh, uh, what, what, uh, what are you on now? Well, just to, to finish the story. So fall Fox okay. chemotherapy uh, in preliminary Huge, huge surgery, and then I get. I uh, they weren't going to give me any kind of cleanup uh, um, chemotherapy, but I said, you know, look, I I was on that Zolota pill, capsidabine, you know, years ago, put me in remission for seven years. So can I try that again? So they let me do that for six months, and I think that created enough of a window. Uh, in 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 the, the cancer went quiet for long enough. It enabled me to get that Toronto surgery safely and with no interference so it it ultimately was worth it to go through that horror show because it let me get to, get a get a, a, a truly restorative surgery for a change instead of something that was just debilitating 
Yeah. Um, but even that, you know, even that the Toronto surgery, as great as it was, um, one of the I also had a weird complication from that that's rarely anticipated, rarely encountered. But when people are put in a weird position for 13 hours, you know, with your your legs are in the air for your feet, your in normal people person your legs would fall asleep well yeah, yeah. one of my legs uh, unfortunately uh, fell asleep to the point where the entire femoral nerve going up and down the leg was completely uh, destroyed uh, and uh, demyelinated completely so it uh, it when you walk the pain was out of this world and not even narcotics could touch it and you couldn't walk so, yeah, so I'm in hospital and I'm going, something's really wrong with this leg. And they're going, oh, no, it's just the usual, you're just reacting to the normal swelling of surgery. I said, honey, I've, I know from surgery, this is not normal. And of course, uh, they eventually did uh, the, the conductance studies on it, the leg, that is to show that uh, it was just, it was the motor nerve survived, but the sensory nerves uh, were, were destroyed and would, would take take many years to, to kind of grow back. And so the sensation was like putting your leg in an Iron Maiden. It was just like, or even, even a, 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 a having a cloth on it or even clothes or a bed sheet was torture, screaming torture. So it took a long time and lots of physio and lots of whatever. And I can walk, I can walk on it now. I, for a while I needed a walker, then I needed a cane. Eventually I could walk unaided. Uh, and now I have uh, severe neuropathy, not just in my hands and feet, which Full Fox gave me anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, on the uh, under the knee of my left leg is, uh, yeah. is essentially um, I'm feeling, and that's uh, pins and needles sensation all the time there. But uh, and that, and according to the neurologist, that's when that is plateaued. It won't it won't get better. But anyway, that's. Uh, that's the kind of, I, if someone had told me, look, I'll, I'll cut off your leg altogether, but you're going to be cured from the horrible complications you had. I'd say, take it off then, because, yeah. uh, you know, I would <laughs> gladly sacrifice my entire leg if I could only have been cured from the condition yeah. I was left in. So the condition I was left in was something, it was almost unspeakable. It essentially, so they basically moved the bladder to be, they had to give me a hysterectomy because they had to, it was all through that, all that, so they took away the uterus and they put the bladder right on top of the hysterectomy cuff well what happens is those two organs burst and oh, bled into God. each other forming one big organ essentially so your kidneys would man you make urine and it would just pour out of you just pour out is it, it was you 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 it couldn't be catheterized so oh, there was no stopping it so it was just straight up urine gush 24-7. And you hear about this kind of condition called a escovaginal fistula. Women in Africa, unfortunately, get, uh, it just occurs to them in India and other undeveloped places, get this because of uh, 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 poor obstetrical care during childbirth. So they end up bursting their, their yeah. bladders through that through childbirth. And uh, they, uh, they suffer horribly from it's it's an uh, it, the they it's uh, it's, so it's psychologically it's well understood, but it's got to be one of the worst things to ever experience psychologically, and mm. physically of course. So while it wasn't a painful condition, it was just soul destroying. So I, so I, I can't live yeah. this. I can't live with this. I'm going to find someone to to repair me, and I did. I found a, a crackerjack guy, just a brilliant guy in uh, in Toronto. Wow. 
Israel. Is this this is not is this the same doctor you were talking about before in Toronto? Yeah, the Toronto doctor yeah. was the one who was yeah. able to cure that condition. Take everything apart, sew it up properly, yeah. put it back in, everything was fine. Yeah. Okay. So I was just I just wanted to check to see whether it were two different doctors from the same yeah. place that just needed some no. praise, but no, just one just one, one superstar. <laughs> one superstar, yeah, remarkable guy. So and, so and, from uh, then so, so after that pandemic recurrence, struggling to get help, another uh, satellite story, which was a bizarre and sad story for uh, that was attached to this whole pathway was, and as a result of cancer treatments and the hyperbaric oxygens and so forth, my eyesight started to fail. And uh, I had what was called the nu escalating nuclear cataracts in both eyes. So these are not ordinary garden variety cataracts where people kind of go blind gradually. It would be like a very, very rapid onset of blindness. And so oh, wow. I was losing, losing vision, losing vision, losing vision. And uh, uh, the optometrist said, look, you'll be dead. You'll be blind. You'll be stone blind. In, you'll be legally blind in six months, stone blind uh, in 12 months if you don't get this condition corrected. But of course, the, my eyesight surgery was cancelled. COVID cancellations all around. So I was like, what am I going to do? And so I took to Twitter, started appealing. Does anybody have any ideas? And uh, eventually, a long and short of it is that, again, a, a, a superlative guy and I, ophthalmologist, uh, got in touch with. He said, I will help you and help you tomorrow. But I can't because I, my, my practice is closed. Or it's, everything's closed. Unless you can get a special ex exception from the government, you could come to see me because I have a private surgery in my office we're not using public um health equipment we're not using public health um property we're not even not we're not using any of their ppe nothing it's a if you can under those of course you have to pay you have to pay private yeah, health nose yeah. to to fix your eyesight but who's not going to do that so i said uh, i said uh, so my community again the same community who lobbied last time for full box Everybody, only this time, with more amplification, because social media is a bigger thing now, today, than it was in 2010. Yeah. Everybody was, you know, what are we going to do? You've got to save this woman's eyesight. Don't let this happen, government. Da, 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 da. Anyway, I, I, again, long story short, was able to acquire a letter from the head of the health authority saying, yes, we'll allow you to be an exception in this case. And I got my eyesight corrected by this uh, laser vision surgeon. At the 11th hour, like days before my chemotherapy was to start. And as you know, you can't have invasive procedures mm -hmm. done to you while you're on chemotherapy. Because I'm incurable, that's chemotherapy for life, right? Yeah. Um, that would, the idea is you, 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 if you were to have such a surgery while under chemotherapy, your, your eyes simply wouldn't heal. It wouldn't heal properly and your outcome, yeah. visual outcome would be terrible. So fortunately, I was able to... Um, get that both eyes corrected prior to but it again it took superhuman megaphone and it took mm. frankly the attention of media so uh, big big uh, big name media uh, stars in uh, Canada started calling and started calling the head of the, the, the head of the NSHA what are you going to do about the McGee case you know because it was it came of a national interest uh, in, uh, that such a story would it was just it was interesting to me, yeah. that more normal humans could relate to the fear of vision loss than they could to cancer. 
So yeah. people were responding to the fear, to the blindness. Don't let this woman go blind. With the, the cancer part was, you know, that was that. It was yeah. what it was. But people were very agitated about the idea of someone going blind unnecessarily. I think it, it might. I suppose it's because everybody, well, not everybody, but most people have got sight. Most people know what it's like to yeah. to have sight and the fear of losing it. But not everybody's going to get cancer. Not everybody has cancer. So, yeah, maybe maybe it was uh, a little of that. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people that refuse to talk about cancer yeah. in terms of how I'm doing and things. And it's because they're... They've just got no understanding of it whatsoever. And That's it. I suppose it is, it's a necessary ignorance, isn't it? Why worry over something if it's not a worry at that moment in time to them, I guess. But, yeah, um, yeah so, so once that was finished, you, you said you went back onto chemotherapy. Was this... Yeah. The Folfox, or was this after? No, no, this is uh, Folfox no, was, uh, was, yeah. uh, was for the debilitating um, situation. This yeah. time, um, because I'd had uh, Folfox previously, uh, I, went, I moved to a second line treatment, and it was uh, Arena TCAN, which is a uh, 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 the colorectal um, type drug, and um, a, book, a drug called Penetumabab, which is uh, ideal for people who have a certain type of. Uh, Left-sided cancer, of which all rectal cancers are considered left-sided, left-sided, and uh, the um, uh, um, apparently, as we develop as as uh, in utero, the uh, the the GI system that develops in a fetus is different on the left than on the right, and they're now realizing that the stem cells involved are slightly different. Therefore, you know, here we are, years years after we've been born, our our uh, responsiveness to certain drugs is going, can vary depending on where the cancer was located on the left or right side of the body when it comes to we're talking wow. about colorectal cancer interesting yeah, anyway yeah. yeah very interesting and uh mm. so yeah in any case the um so is on um uh, back to the the cocktail is a really can panatumabab uh and a 5-fu bottle which uh, you have to uh carry with you for for a few days after your infusion, ah, so, so you have to have, carry it around in a fanny pack as it as it slowly infuses into yeah. you. So that takes the time it does, and then you then and that, those treatment cycles are every two weeks. So it's not like breast cancer, <laughs> three weeks off in between. No, it's a it's yeah. only two. So more time consuming and, and a little more harsh as far as yeah. immediate accum accumulation, but. Uh, what I found, this is much more tolerable. No mouth sores, no diarrhea, no, none of that. So, so you, the pari, sorry, uh, pardon the pronunciation, but paritumimab, was it? Panitumimab. Panitumimab, <laughs> the brand name, it sounds like a cereal, Vectibix. Vectibix, V-E-C-T-I-Bix, B-I-X, Vectibix. So that's what they, uh, that's its cuter uh, name. <laughs> So, is that is that chemotherapy or is that targeted no. therapy? Well, it's, a, it's a it's targeted, but it it, it is it is is used as a chemotherapy. It has the unfortunate consequence of being quite ravaging to the skin, because it works uh, oh. to uh, address one's um, follicle uh, um, um, development. 
the same receptors responsible for the development of of uh, one's follicle. So you lose, you, you do, you do sacrifice a lot. Well, if you don't lose it altogether, you sacrifice your hair, uh, your eyebrows, your hair, uh, and some people get a really, really horrific rash, like raised red, red welts and pustules. Um, what I, what you, what you need, what people need is uh, derma, dermatology uh, assistance mm -hmm. right out, right away to try and address that uh, skin reaction because there are, there are uh, the standard of care options for managing it uh, are inadequate, uh, and everyone knows that. That that's yeah. a field that needs to develop. I suppose the the two aren't really developing with each other because they're coming up with all these uh, right. targeted drugs, but they're not keeping up with it with everything else in terms of side effects. I suppose they're, they're still learning themselves, aren't they? With yeah, with everything well, yeah, that comes with and, it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but I, you know, I've been on that drug long enough that uh, I don't get the I don't get the rash. I, I do get quite dry skin, and you know, mm. I get the dry, dry, dry skin that cracks in the corners of your mouth and your eyes and so forth. So it gets very, very affected, but it doesn't turn, it doesn't break out into these welts. Yeah, I see. So are you still on that currently? Yeah. So, uh, so yet again, so once again, so I had enough. So I was on the drug and uh, it was controlling the, the, the pelvic uh, cancer was just staying stable and it would stay stable, stay in the images that we take of it. Didn't change on chemo, off chemo, off chemo, off chemo. It was exactly the same every single time. So they go, are we really doing anything? Maybe what are you, we should take a break, a, a three-month chemo break. I said, okay, three-month break. It's summertime. That would be great. I'd love a break. So I go on a break, and then Omicron hits. <laughs> and my three-month break turns into a six-month break, which was way too much opportunity for this cancer. And so it has uh, grown like 60 I knew that it was because, again, the blood markers were showing it was. And, of course, another PET CT revealed, yes, your cancer is progressing like 60. But, we, you know, you need, uh, you need a minor su superficial uh, skin surgery to be done. We can't do your chemo until that's been scheduled. And that can't be scheduled because the ORs were all closed because Omicron has made all the nurses are all seconded to COVID response. So, you know, it was all... COVID-related resource delays. Uh, so I've had yeah. so I've had cancer strikingly four times, and each of the four times I've had a significant delay in treatment, much longer than ever should have been in all instances. And uh, yet I'm still alive. It's 12 years. I've been diagnosed 12 wow. years, and the, and the normal life expectancy for someone with a stage four colorectal cancer isn't usually more than two years. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you put that down to what would you put the the 12 over two years down to you know uh, I, I used to think that i was wonderful and special and it was really due to me being great and all these wonderful things <laughs> <laughs> and then i found a paper that says there's at least 12 other people like me in the world and there's a paper that came out of japan saying hey you know what we found this subset of people who have really long progression free intervals some people as long as 10 years but they all recur and it's people who have a disease in uh, a specific lymph node, the right internal iliac node, if that matters. A little, this one little node, if that's impacted in the Japanese practices, if that node is impacted, we take that node out. In Western practice, they didn't. And, that, and so now um, there's evidence to show there's, that this is, it's just the 
physiology, essentially, and an anatomy of this particular met this particular kind of uh, of disease is associated with people having big, huge, long remissions where they think they're cured, and they're not. Wow. <laughs> so, you, you seem quite a, a positive person, from from what I can see and can sense. Do you think maybe that has played a part in? I, I would love to say that that's part of it, but I I I, I will say. I've met many beautiful, wonderful, positive fighter warriors who did not survive. And, and to me, they you, no amount of courage is uh, going to help you if you are in yeah. an oncoming freight train. <laughs> There's only so much positivity <laughs> yeah. is going to bring you. And uh, so um, what I think positivity does is make you have a higher quality of life for the time you have. So yeah. it's, it's still something worth doing. It's still worth it to be positive. It's worth it to be aggressive and, you know, really, really do your best to kind of push your care up the, up the, the hill. Task of Sisyphus, you push it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, stand again. Rock and roll forever. But anyway, it is, um, it is, uh, it, it makes your, your psychological life better. And as I say, I'm a psychologist, so that's nice. But I am also quite um, sensitive to what I've, uh, as a psychologist, would call the tyranny of the positive in cancer uh, treatment, where people s- approach cancer patients, especially right after their diagnosis, where they're all shocked and reeling, and they say, you got to be positive, you got to be positive, you got to be positive. If you have one single thought or feeling of despair or grief, and when you are killing yourself, you know, it is not realistic to ask yeah. have people not have feelings of despair and fear and anxiety and all the negative. I've known so many cancer patients who are so upset and so ashamed of their negative feelings and afraid to own them because they are dread that they, but they can't contain them either because they're so huge. And so they feel uh, tortured by, Mm -hmm. I can't tell my friends I'm feeling despair. They'll be mad at me. And, uh, and, but despair is a very reasonable and logical thing to feel under the condition, under the circumstances. So, yeah. uh, so what I have learned, I read a, a really book called, a great book called The Sexy, Crazy Sexy Cancer. Chris Carr wrote this book back in 2010. And, and uh, she had a very, very rare and operable multi, multi-tumor cancer for which there was no treatment. And. Does she? Uh, but if you need to take time to just grieve, do it. You can. You're allowed. And yeah. I thought that's great. This is great. She's giving people permission to feel, and uh, I think that's what people need and deserve. Uh, no one can be positive all the time. No, uh, no, uh, I, under the threat of cancer. No, I think. Uh, yeah, I think if if somebody appears to be positive all the time that are dealing with cancer, I think. There must be something behind the eyes that isn't Gives quite, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I asked because when I was first diagnosed, I think I've mentioned it on previous episodes where I, I spoke to my oncologist and said, look, positive mental attitude, what can that do for me? And he said, look, nobody knows, but it can't hurt. 
And I think that's that's the best thing because I, you know, I, I try to be a positive person, but like I say, it's it's good to have those those few days of self pity, I suppose, because it. Yeah. it and the longer your cancer survivor, the longer you eventually know people who who are positive and strong and try everything and still don't survive. So yeah. I hate this thought that we, the living, are somehow superior to those who before us who've died. They were facing diseases that were biologically much more, much more dangerous than we, or had gone much further than ours, or whatever. So, when I think of surviving cancer, I, I honestly, a lot of that is a biological luck of the draw. What is the, uh, what are the genetic, what's the genetic makeup of your cancer compared to someone else's? Mm. So I know people who are diagnosed stage two cases who are dead now, oh, because. Wow. They, 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 they ought to have stage two. It's a 90%, 90% survival at stage two. Not theirs because it was that aggressive. So, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the biology of these, uh, these uh, it, cancers, we're only just beginning to understand those now from the genetic yeah. uh, mutation perspective. And uh, in the same way now that we know that there's like seven different types of breast cancers, Estrogen positive, triple negative, all these different types. There are also subtypes of all other cancers: prostate, oh, yeah. lung, yeah. Uh, and colorectal. The two, the the big, the big four killers. Yeah, yeah. So, just staying on the the subject of positivity, um, I like to ask everybody this: um, if you were to face somebody that was not necessarily going through the same circumstances as what you have, because I. I think, with, without offending, I think yours is extremely unique, and hopefully nobody else had ever has to go through that. But, uh, if you were facing somebody that was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer, for instance, what what sort of message would you want to to sort of give them to to, to sort of set them on the start of their own journey? There's a couple of things that I uh, advise right away to people. There's some things that are, you know, unique. Some things I tell all oh, people, like, you know what you need to do? You need to go to the dentist. And they go, the dentist? And they'll, yeah, said, because dentists actually can buff your teeth in a way that will minimize the likelihood of mouth sores. And they went, who knew? Like, who do? You can't know these things until you know no, yeah. You need to know them. And uh, so there's many little things like that that doctors won't tell you, but a survivor an knowledgeable person can tell you, or a dentist could tell you. So, so uh, there's things there's there's things that I tell people to do. You know, keep all your receipts for tax time, etc. There's all those kinds of advice. But really, one of the main things I like to tell people is there really is no substitute for programs like yours, where people uh, can talk to or hear or even connect with um, people who have survived the the, the disease they're facing, and. Uh, uh, um, our our cancer care our cancer society here had a program for the longest time, which of course died under lack of COVID funding. But um, a program where you could phone up and say, "I've got multiple myeloma, and I, I don't know anyone. I'm only you know 25. I don't know a soul who has this. Can you tell?" I said, "We will find you another uh, uh, person who who has this diagnosis and who lived through it." And you would, they put you on the phone and you end up talking to someone. So for many people. Um, it gives them hope, uh, immediate hope, to know that some people do uh, have quite extended lives uh, facing their disease and or can be cured altogether. And so 
those uh, those are people who. Uh, uh, so, in my opinion, there is no substitute for talking to a cancer survivor. There's no substitute for talking to someone who's actually walked that walk, the walk that you, you the newly diagnosed person, is facing. And the reason I say that in part is because, um, you know, uh, there's things that uh, we patients know that no nurses and no doctors know. Um, and even right down to, you know, I need a cream for, for my, for this part of me, which is all damaged. Oh yeah, the best cream that I tried, this cream and that cream. And, but I ended up settling on this cream because it worked really well. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, the doctors and nurses can't keep up with all that. We're experiencing some technical difficulties. I know that Robin mentioned previously that uh, the weather was really bad in Canada. So I would assume that the weather has unfortunately got the best of us. I hope we can get her back because we really, really wanted to talk about uh, a special project that she had uh, that she had started undertaking some time ago. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about that because I think I want to leave it to Robin if we can get her back. Right. Uh, sorry about that, everyone. We now have Robin back. <laughs> I think the uh, the weather's starting to get... Uh, yes, our, uh, another major storm here. Freezing rain now, so that drags our power poles down. Oh, wow. Wow. It's, uh, we get a lot of rain, but I, I can't imagine it being as, uh, as bad as to bring uh, power cables down and things like that. Well, with, with the climate change, our, we're, we get our, we've started to get like next to no snow. But, uh, and when it does snow, it also rains simultaneously. But, so when, but that, when it freezes again, that's uh, absolutely dreadful. Oh. It's just sheet of ice everywhere. Wow. I thought uh, Canada was always going to be under under a few inches of snow. <laughs> you would think, but uh, climate change yeah. is uh, happening here too. Oh, wow. Um, right, so basically before we, we finish, I, you know, I'm really keen to hear about this. So y you set up on a project, didn't you? And um, it was a book that you wrote called The Cancer Olympics. That's right. I wrote uh, it, and it tells the story of my first, uh, <laughs> my, my pre-recurrence uh, cancer experience. So, um, sort of, so it's, a, it's a story that's not only about the sort of fight for survival, but it, the two unusual features of my, of my story, the horrendous malpractice and the story of that and my search for medical justice through the college and how the college responded and the whole investigation into it, what went down. All of that's in there. And uh, also this idea of, of a whole community lobbying and being successful in lobbying the government to change the formulary to, uh, to uh, address best practice drugs as they um, are available for cancer. That, that was also a really surprising experience to actually fight the government and succeed like when when <laughs> I'm, I'm used to the Don Quixote images of we try and try and try and government just says no not hearing but in this case it was uh, we were respond we were successful uh, uh, as I say too late for me but but not for everybody else so I feel so I, I joke that it I'm like Moses you know I could lead people to the promised land but I couldn't enter it 
myself. So uh, as, if, as if anyone would ever call Oxaliplatin the promised land. <laughs> it's the least enjoyable paradise experience yeah. you can imagine. Anyway, um, so but with with uh, so that so the book the Cancer Olympics tells the story of uh, I have it right here actually. Somebody else wants me to mail it to me to them today. It's so the image on the front cover. I don't know if you can see that. There's a, oh, yeah. You can see there's a person facing a series of hurdles, and the hurdles go on into infinity. And this is uh, that's me and me on the back too. Um, but uh, so it tells the story of the fight for fair chemotherapy policy, the fight for medical justice through through the college. It didn't go. It doesn't go into the lawsuit because that actually didn't prevail until many years later. Um, and uh, and uh, about the, the fight for survival against a late stage cancer, so a colorectal cancer. So it's a, a, a sort of a snapshot of that. And you know, in the days of um, 2010, Facebook wasn't a thing, and it, social media just wasn't the thing that it is today yeah. in terms of helping people. Uh, and so I had a, a like a private sort of bloggy type website thing that I used. That people called Robin's Cancer Olympics. That was the name of it. Um, saying, "Oh, you're going to go get the gold medal in uh, in radiation or whatever thing I was trying." And uh, so uh, it, it wasn't like carrying bridges. It wasn't one of those ones where you have to go to a website. It would be use push email, so people could I could send out a message saying this happened today, and we'd go to all my audience, the 200 or so people on the list. And they could email me back and emails would come to me privately. Not like Facebook where everybody can see the responses. I see, I see them privately. Yeah. And uh, then that is the vehicle by which we mounted the advocacy. So people sent me back. This is the letter I sent to the premier. This is the letter I sent to the health minister. This is what, and the whole story of how a community advocates for someone. It was, I had actual posts of people's. So it's sort of, it, it unfolds in real time. So I wrote it in the first person present tense. Um, um, so people say they equate it with the, the you know, cancer meets the hunger games. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I'm the girl on fire trying to uh, change the society, but also I'm on fire because I've been at radiation. So, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, uh, a cracking good read. If I do say so myself, it's run about seven uh, different little awards for, um, uh, an independent book, and so it's uh, done very. It's done very well. Um, now, um, have things changed since the since 2010 or even 2014? Of course, they have. But the emotion yeah. side of it and the community side of it would be um, appealing to many today. Also, the medical practice side of it. When I first wrote the book, and book clubs would say, "Would you come to my book club to talk about it?" But when I got there. All that anyone ever wanted to talk about was their own stories of medical error, medical error, medical error, medical error, which people don't realize is the third leading, leading cause of death in, in Canada and the United States oh, wow. is medical error. Thirteen, a person dies every 13 minutes from medical error in Canada, more, tw more than twice of COVID. It's, oh. it's a, uh, it is a real killer. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I, since all of that, I've become quite active in the patient safety movement advocating for there to be safer care uh, um, uh, across my country and in all countries. So we, we, yeah. work, we work towards that goal of every patient safe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that, uh, it, it, it does sound like a, well, it sounds like a really, really good read, but 
of, of course, through a, a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> if you're going to have a story like that, you may as well tell it because it's so. Oh, uh, so people would say, if this were Hollywood, they would say, send this back to the writers. There's no way this could happen in real life, but yeah. it really did. It really did yeah, happen. Yeah. And you know, as you see, it's all quite well documented, so there's no you know mistaking what was really happening to anyone yeah. at any time. But I wrote, I guess I say, first person present tense. So instead of I saw a picture of my tumor, it is I am looking at a picture of my tumor. It is how say, it feels yeah. in real time because in real time, it you don't get to know the end of your story. You can only it only unfolds yeah. in the present. So wow. that's the way I wrote it, and it definitely uh, enhanced the uh, suspense factor of of the read. So, uh, and, and just and for it, the oh, sorry, go. On. I just want to say just two little pieces uh, that I'll add is, uh, um, I in 2016 uh, the uh, Canadian Cancer Society gave me their gold medal of courage, which is sort of their highest honor for some of the patient advocacy I had done, and. Uh, advocacy and cancer care and so i you know i was able to say to people look i really did get the, the gold medal in the cancer olympics and uh so there was that and then the other thing i think you as a as a uh, citizen of the uk would respond to this a lot of americans don't get it when i tell them but i was decorated by the governor general of canada oh, for wow. my work in advocacy which you know, the governor general is our is our representative of the queen Right, mm. so I like to think this is what it would feel like to get a metal print on your chest by the Queen. That would be <laughs> wow. I was it was definitely the, one of the highlights of life I've had is to be yeah. that close to the Governor General. And it's funny because when they give you a medal, you think they're pinning it on you, but pins hurt, so they don't, they stop mm. doing that. They actually put a little magnet under your clothes, and so they hold the medal close to your uh. chest. And it flies. It snaps. <laughs> <all the> <laughs> Oh, wow. so, so they don't actually have to touch you when they decorate you. But anyway, that that was a, uh, a high point uh, was getting a a, a, a medal uh, from the governor general for yeah. for my for my cancer related work and for the work that went that is you read about in the, in the cancer Olympics. Yeah, I see. And uh, just for the, the the listeners, where can they get a copy of that book? And I, you can get it, it uh, the usual uh, suspects, you can get it, it's on Amazon, it's on um, Audible, there's an audio version, which I narrate myself, there is a, uh, it is uh, Kobo, Kindle, e-reader, like every uh, every source, the common sources, um, you you can uh, you can get it from, so um, um, I could perhaps send you the uh, the Amazon uh, smart URL, so whatever country in the okay. world someone's in, they click on it and it goes to their country's Amazon Oh, that'd be good. So you don't end up lost in uh, another country's system. Mm. That'd be brilliant because I can put it in the uh, the bio for the uh, the podcast, and people will be able to just get it there and then. And, um, and the last thing I'll mention is that I have a, since because I uh, after having written the book, I I communicate with the people around me using a a blog called uh, thecancerolympics.com. and what I try to do there is tell the story of my answers uh, since that day and doing uh, all the things I've just related, the air, for further errors and whatnot, um, uh, through, the, uh, through the lens of uh, popular songs. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, so a lot of uh, rock and roll songs, a lot of Genesis, Coldplay, whatever, all the groups like that and, and you two taking their lyrics and uh, how those lyrics illustrate some emotional aspect of the cancer experiences. 
I believe we've lost Robin again. Oh, the weather must be getting quite, quite bad. Right, and after another <laughs> another temperamental weather spell, uh, Robin is back with us. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm I'm glad you've come back on because I can. I can see you, I know our listeners can't, but I, at least I can thank you to your face and say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on to the show because although it's, you know, it's been a, it's obviously been a, a huge ordeal for you. Um, and I, I hope that nobody ever has to go through this again. And I'm, I'm sure you agree. Um, but for people to learn from this, uh, however, whether they read your book, whether they listen to this or talk to you in person, I, I hope people can take something away from this. But to for you to take the time out of your day to come on and share this, it, it's, you know, it's really appreciated. And um, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> oh no, I think we've lost her again. <laughs> <laughs>